Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everyone and welcome to this Halloween edition of the Mummy Movie Podcast where chosen by you or at least those who voted on the poll on the Mummy Movie Podcast Instagram page we are looking at the scariest film of all Scooby Doo Where's My Mummy from 2005 In terms of the format of the episode It shall be the same as usual. We shall start with a look at the background information, then a section on the historical accuracy, and finally I shall review the film and rate it out of 10. But before then, let us set the spooky scene. Right. Ever since a member of your gang left to go on excavation in Egypt, you have been missing her, or at least the Scooby snack she used to feed you so much so that the rest of your gang agree to go and see her now you are traveling through the egyptian desert on your way to the great sphinx however little do you realize that you will get more than you bargained for not only have they just discovered the long lost tomb of cleopatra but with it Curses are moving through the land and the dead are rising in more than one way. You will soon be asking, where's my mummy? This was the last Scooby-Doo film to be released on VHS, and it was also the only Scooby-Doo cartoon to be released in theaters, albeit in a limited capacity and only in the US. Whilst it had its theatrical release on May 13th, 2005, it was not released on home video until December 13th, exactly 7 months later. Right, now on to the more important stuff. Throughout the course of this film, 
we have many famous Scooby-Doo phrases. We have five counts of zoinks, nine counts of jeepers, and three counts of jinkies. However, sadly, at no point in this film do we see Scooby-Doo and Shaggy bribed with Scooby snacks. A true tragedy, and I think we can all agree a detriment to this film. However, it does make up for it by having Velma lose her glasses in one scene, as she should in all things relating to Scooby-Doo. This time, the gag works especially well, as it very much reminds the viewer of Mr. Burns losing his glasses in the excellent Mummy remake film from 1999. You know, the one with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weitz. Talking about that particular film, Odid Fair, who played the very cool character of the face-tattooed Magi, Ardiff Bay, also appears as a voice actor in this film. In this one, he plays Amal Ali Akbar, one of the allies of the gang. In fact, this film does have a few surprisingly big stars. For instance, Ron Perlman, who appeared in the surprisingly good Hellboy films, um, Titan AE, which me and Ollie covered on this very podcast, as well as the Scorpion King 3, also covered on this podcast, as well as about a billion other films as well. In this one, he plays the part of Hotep. In terms of the other cast members, AJ Naidu, who's best known for the 1999 film Office Space, plays Prince Omar, who's kind of the gang's main ally in the film. Casey Chasm plays the part of Shaggy. Mindy Cohen plays the part of Velma. Grey Delisle plays Daphne. And Frank Welker plays the parts of Fred and Scooby-Doo. Okay, we have now arrived at the historical accuracy section. So here, I'm just going to go over the film, saying what it does well and poorly. To begin with, similar to many Mummy movies, this one starts with a flashback scene, this time in the year 41 BC. In this scene, we see Roman forces attacking the city of Alexandria in Egypt, as Cleopatra is forced to flee to the pyramids. It is probably worth noting a few small points first. Firstly, Alexandria is a city which still stands today and is located along the coast of Egypt. During the reign of Cleopatra, it was actually the capital of the country. This particular scene is made out to be the Battle of Alexandria, which happened between July 1st and July 30th, 30 BC so I'm not sure why they have set this opening scene in 41 BC. After all, this film was released in 2005, and I feel like a simple Google search could have told them that this was the wrong date. To truly understand why this battle came about, it is a little hard to know where to begin, as, shockingly, history does not often have clear-cut beginnings and ends, and so I shall start this story in 47 BC. Basically, Cleopatra had been having an affair with Julius Caesar. This had largely come about because Caesar had sided with Cleopatra in a civil war against her younger brother and likely husband, Ptolemy XIII. Shocking that Scooby-Doo missed out this detail about, you know, the brother-husband. <laughs> with the help of Caesar, Cleopatra defeated Ptolemy XIII, and then in around about 47 BC, she and Caesar had a son together called Caesarion. However, 
In 44 BC, Caesar was assassinated in Rome, partly due to his popularity and also because he had assigned himself dictator for life. As such, many were viewing him as a tyrant. After this, as Caesarion was Cleopatra's only potential heir, she began an affair with one of Caesar's former generals and also one of Caesar's distant cousins on his mother's side, Mark Anthony. It is generally believed that Cleopatra picked Mark Anthony to produce further potential heirs as he was seen as the most powerful Roman after the death of Caesar. All seemed to be going well until Mark Anthony returned from Egypt to Rome and in order to strengthen his alliance with a man named Octavian, who would later change his name to Augustus to become the first ever emperor of Rome, he married his sister Octavia in 40 BC. What imaginative parents they must have had, by the way. You can almost see the conversation. Um, we just had another child. A son this time. What shall we call him? Well, his older sister is called Octavia, so shall we just call him Octavius? Uh, yeah, why not? Anyway, as you can imagine, Cleopatra was not too happy about this marriage, especially as she had just gotten pregnant by Mark Anthony shortly before he had returned to Rome. As such, her relationship with Mark Anthony soured for a time. However, four years later, they would meet once again as he left Italy to command troops in Parthia. At this time, he met with her to discuss the support they could give each other. He needed funding for his campaigns, and she needed help against her rival Herod. And yes, that is the same Herod mentioned in the Bible. You know, kill all the firstborns and all that. Basically, Cleopatra wanted to reclaim former Ptolemaic territories, many of which Herod now held. Cleopatra brought the twins she had had with Mark Anthony along to the meeting, and bear in mind there's a very good chance he had never met them before. Personally, my perspective of Cleopatra is that she was very clever and also very crafty. I believe that she did not just do this because she felt their father should see them, she probably did it as a bit of a political play to get what she wanted as well. You know, almost a bit of emotional blackmail. And well, it worked. In a new agreement made, Cleopatra would regain a large amount of land and the rulers of those areas, such as Herod, would become client rulers under her. On top of this, the relationship between Mark Anthony and Octavia began to sour until in 32 BC, he divorced her and married Cleopatra instead. This basically led to a rift between Mark Anthony and Octavius, partly because of their divorce, and also because Mark Anthony was essentially helping a foreign queen in Cleopatra to gain much land and power. 60% of the Roman Senate then sided with Octavius, whilst the remaining 40% sided with Mark Anthony and went to his and Cleopatra's side who had set up their armies in Greece. And so, with Cleopatra, Mark Anthony, and 40% of the Senate on one side, and Octavius, and 60% of the Senate on the other, the War of Actium began. The most notable battle in the Civil War was the Naval Battle of Actium, which essentially led to Cleopatra and Mark Anthony being forced back to Alexandria where they were cornered. 
Then, in July 30 BC, the Battle of Alexandria began, the very setting of the opening of this film. As much as I do complain about Cleopatra taking too much of the focus off of other female pharaohs, I will admit her story has it all. Romance, violence and tragedy. She truly did have a fascinating life, and I don't know of many writers who could replicate the intrigue that sprinkled throughout it. I should probably just say that this is a very abridged version of these events, where I have taken an approach that mainly focuses on her relationships. However, realistically, you could probably make an entire podcast purely based on the reign of Cleopatra, so I feel I am justified in taking this approach. Moving on, during this scene, as we watch Alexandria burn, we can see the lighthouse of Alexandria in the background. Standing at over a hundred metres tall, this was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and whilst it has not survived to the modern day, it was very much in operation during the time of Cleopatra. As the battle continues, we see Cleopatra fleeing the city in a boat, and she heads to the pyramids. One cool thing here, the pyramids are shown with their limestone outer casing. And also, they all have golden capstones, which in ancient Egypt were known as benbens. The limestone casing would have still largely been there during the time of Cleopatra. On the other hand, it is not entirely known when the capstones went missing. However, I feel it would not have been there during the reign of Cleopatra. Very unlikely, anyway. After all, let's take the Great Pyramid as an example, as it's the most famous. That pyramid was built 2,500 years before her reign. In fact, one commonly touted statistic, which just so happens to be true, is that Cleopatra is closer in time to us than she was the building of the Great Pyramid. That gives some clue of just how long Pharaonic Egypt lasted. In this film, she descends into a secret tomb underneath the Great Sphinx, where she and an army of undead stand guard over the last treasure of ancient Egypt. Unsurprisingly, this is purely fictional. Though, in fairness to the film, the location of her tomb is also unknown. Though, realistically, it probably is nowhere near the pyramids or Cairo, and is likely either in or near Alexandria instead. So, you know, only just over 200 kilometres to the north of where the film is proposing. A mere 46-hour walk, if you will. In terms of her actual death, it is not entirely known what happened, and unfortunately we have to rely on ancient writers who were pretty often prone to hyperbole. It is likely, however, that she and Mark Anthony killed themselves after Alexandria fell. The most famous story here is that Cleopatra killed herself by getting an asp to bite her. Although there is no way of verifying this, it is also the oldest account of her death, originally told by Strabo, who did live during the time of Cleopatra. Later, Plutarch reiterated this story, though both he and another writer, Cassius Dio, also admitted that there isn't really any way of knowing for sure. The film then moves forward to the modern day, where we have Velma on an archaeological dig by the Great Sphinx. 
And if you are wondering why I keep saying Sphinx in different ways every single time, it's because I find it really hard to say that word. A little bit embarrassing for an Egyptologist. In the first part of this scene, we see Velma find an amulet in the shape of an unk. During the flashback scene, we actually saw Cleopatra wearing this very amulet. As soon as Velma finds this unk, which presumably has been there for the last 2,000 years, she immediately picks it up and takes it to show Prince Omar, who is in charge of the dig. When such an item is found, you most certainly do not immediately move it. Fair enough, if it had been a fragment of pottery or something small like that, it would have been placed in a bag and labelled to show which layer it came from. But a large object of solid gold with a complete diamond in the middle would need to be photographed and measured before being moved. Also, later on, we just see Velma wearing it and everyone just keeps commenting on how neat the necklace looks. Bear in mind that this artefact, when accidentally held up to the sun, unlocked a secret entrance to the tomb of Cleopatra as if by magic. That would be a bit like me going on a dig, finding a complete Roman helmet that magically granted me the power of immortality and then just wearing it while I carry on digging. Needless to say, it might be a tad frowned upon. Also, early on in the film, the rest of the gang just drive onto the site in their mystery machine. Scooby-Doo then causes chaos, and then they surprise Daphne. How lovely. In fairness, Prince Omar is vaguely annoyed at first, but when he realises that these are Daphne's friends, he greets them with open arms. Bear in mind, not only are they on a dig in Egypt, where such things are highly prohibited, but they also just found the long-lost tomb of Cleopatra. This site would be highly protected at this point. In the very best-case scenario, the Scooby gang would end up in jail and we would be watching a very different film. Scooby meets Shawshank Redemption, if you will. Scooby in the Green Mile. Actually, definitely don't do that second one. That film made me cry so much. I, I don't think I could bear it if they put a dog in there as well. It's probably worth noting as well that we're supposed to be by the pyramids and the Great Sphinx. And yet, there is no city and no houses to be seen anywhere. In reality, Cairo is easily seen from the Sphinx. On a more positive note, between the Sphinx's legs, it is possible to see a large slab of stone that looks a bit like a gravestone. This is what is known as a stealer, and in this case, more specifically, the Dream Stealer, which was set up by Thutmose IV in around about 1400-ish BC. Basically, this stealer talks about Thutmose IV when he was younger and before he was pharaoh. At this time, the Sphinx had been covered by sand as a thousand years had passed since its construction. Thutmose IV fell asleep in the shade of the Sphinx, and in a dream it spoke to him, claiming that if he cleared the sand away, he would become the next king of Egypt. Although it is not entirely known why this stealer was written, it is theorised that Thutmose IV may have used it as a way of showing that his rule was divinely inspired. So overall, the history here is, unsurprisingly, not great. 
absolutely shocking and unacceptable from a Scooby-Doo cartoon. We have the Battle of Alexandria, 11 years before it actually happened. Cleopatra being buried under the Great Sphinx. Velma moving valuable artefacts before they have been properly photographed and measured. And also people randomly wandering onto an archaeological site in Egypt where they just so happen to have found one of the greatest finds of all time. However, in fairness, they do show the lighthouse of Alexandria, and we do get to see the dream stealer between the legs of the Sphinx. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section. So here, I'm simply going to go over the film, saying what I liked and disliked, and then rate it out of 10. First things first, I feel I'm not alone in this, but I love the goofy fun feel of Scooby-Doo. There is so much nostalgia in these cartoons. Further, I really enjoyed the flashback scene at the beginning. Historical accuracy aside, it was a fun and over-the-top way of starting the film that unashamedly leaned on all of the typical tropes that make mummy movies so exciting. We have a long-lost tomb, an army of the undead, and plenty of mystery and potential scares lined up for the remainder of the film. Basically, it did a lot to keep my interest and made me want to keep on watching. There were also undeniably a few scenes that genuinely made me chuckle. For instance, at one part, the mystery machine breaks down in the middle of the desert. Shaggy and Scooby offer to go in search of help and snacks. There is then a long clip of them out in the desert, seemingly near dying of thirst, when they see a mirage in the desert. Before you know it, they are swimming through the water, then they try and drink it, only to realise that it's a trick of the light and they have put sand in their mouths. Then the camera pans back and we realise they are mere metres away from the mystery machine and Fred and Daphne are watching them a little bit perplexed. Later, when they enter the tomb of Cleopatra, it is revealed that there is a curse that claims that any who enter shall be turned to stone. As they head through the winding corridors, several of their party do indeed get turned to stone. The best of these is when Velma loses her glasses. When she finds them again, she is face to face with an unseen person. The next thing we know, she also has been turned to stone. This is a genuine mystery and one I was not able to figure out. In fact, this and several other scenes in the film made me worried that we were dealing with genuine supernatural forces here. After all, in my opinion, Scooby-Doo always works best when the actual monster at the end is just a person in a suit. Call me a traditionalist, but I feel that this approach is far more interesting and more in the spirit of the show. This film took me to the verge of thinking that we were dealing with the supernatural here, and then in the last few minutes explained 90% of it, admittedly in ludicrous ways. But in all honesty, I give the film full credit for this. I will not say what the ending is just in case people want to watch it, but I genuinely stood no chance of guessing it, and I did quite like the ending. At one point in the film, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy stumble upon a group of people living in the way of the ancient Egyptians. As soon as they see Scooby-Doo, 
they bow and reveal that he is the one from the prophecy. All hail, King Ascubis. I'm not gonna lie, I laughed out loud at Scooby-Doo being called Ascubis. Obviously, this is a play on the ancient Egyptian deity Anubis, who was also depicted as a dog. This was just too silly and I loved it. Next, although I will not ruin the overall plot of the film, at one point, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy have to fight a giant scorpion in an arena. They escape in a chariot and it chases them through the streets. Then the scorpion plummets into the water. At this point, it begins to spark and malfunction and it is revealed that the entire time it has been a robot. Given the way the film was going at this point, this was a genuine twist and one of a few that I did not see coming. In fact, it was scenes such as this that kept my interest throughout the film. There were, however, one or two twists that came off as funny and not really for the right reasons. Though I guess at least I did find them entertaining. For instance, near the beginning of the film, we find out that the Nile has dried up. This is played off as part of the curse of Cleopatra. But first of all, it is weirdly played off as just a, a side plot. And I'm sorry, but such an event would be catastrophic for Egypt and the world, and yet no one seems to be that bothered by it. Then later, we find out that one of the villains in the film had been damming the river, and that was why it had dried up. Um, what? The villain was just casually damming the Nile, the longest river in the world. Do you care to explain how? No? Alright, I guess. I mean, don't get me wrong, I did find this funny, but definitely not for the right reasons. I also did find it funny that Daphne was able to easily read hieroglyphs with the help of just, you know, a kind of small handbook, basically. I mean, that's just not how hieroglyphs work. There are also one or two issues that are genuinely bad and not in like a, a fun way. The main one of these is that the pacing was a bit all over the place, especially early on in the film. For instance, in the space of 10 minutes, we have Velma finding the tomb of Cleopatra, a short scene where the gang are travelling to the site to surprise Velma, and then the Nile has dried up and a load of archaeologists are fighting over the chance to explore the tomb. This all seemingly happens in less than a day. And don't get me wrong, I get that we're dealing with a Scooby-Doo film here and it's not really supposed to be realistic and it is supposed to be relatively fast moving but for me this came across as more kind of jarring to be honest. This film was only about an hour and 15 minutes long and I do genuinely feel that another, you know, just another 10 minutes could have helped to sort of even out that pacing at the beginning a little bit. Also, there are a few plot holes here. For instance, Scooby-Doo and Shaggy get separated from the gang in the tomb and then find their way out. When Daphne and Fred escape the tomb, firstly, they already somehow know that Scooby and Shaggy have escaped, but they also seem to know roughly where they have gone. This isn't a big deal, of course, but it is undeniably quite lazy writing. In terms of the reviews, in all honesty, they're actually not that bad. It doesn't have a critical consensus on Rotten Tomatoes, but it has an audience score of 62%, 
and on LNDB it has a 6.6 .6 out of 10. In general, it is seen as very colourful, genuinely funny at parts, and one of the better Scooby-Doo movies. Some did feel that the film was a bit predictable as a whole, although most people admitted that the ending was very different and a genuine twist. For myself, I agree with most of this. I actually enjoyed this Scooby-Doo film much more than I was expecting to. I have seen some of the other Scooby-Doo animated films from this era, and I always felt that they didn't really live up to the old series. But in my opinion, Scooby-Doo Where's My Mummy is one of the exceptions. I genuinely enjoyed this film, and in terms of a rating, I am giving it 7 out of 10. Although it had its fair few problems, it was also genuinely charming, genuinely intriguing, and genuinely a proper Scooby-Doo adventure. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you enjoyed this Halloween episode. And if you have, why not like, subscribe, ride through the streets in one of those old-style campaign cars, you know, the ones with the big megaphones on the top, and play episodes of the Mummy Movie Podcast for all to hear. And join me next time, where we shall be looking at the first ever episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, titled My First Adventure. For those who do not know about this series, it came out in the 90s and was actually a really expensive show at the time, filming mostly on location in various sites around the world. In this one, a child version of Indiana Jones meets Howard Carter. I hope you all have an amazing Halloween and a fantastic week, and see you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.